Let me ask you to take a second this morning as, as we pray together and, and ask the Lord to speak to you. Invite the Spirit to be welcome here, to quiet our minds and our hearts so we might hear and be transformed. And then if you would, let me invite you again to, to pray on behalf of, of someone else, perhaps a community, maybe someone in this room. Spend just a moment in intercessory prayer, praying that God would richly bless somebody that you know and love. Father, we give you thanks. We give you our, our praises this morning for the uncountable number of blessings that you have given us. We are a grateful people because we are a people who have been gifted with so much, with life, with salvation, family and friends, church, community, a, a chance this morning to worship, to read the scriptures. And Father, we pray that you would be with those in our hearts near and dear to us who are still hurting or recovering. We pray that you would bring peace and healing. We pray that you would open up our eyes so that we might know where and how we can be the conduit of your peace and healing, bringing your love to others. And we pray, Father, that this morning, your spirit would fill us up afresh, would point us to the work and the person of your son, Jesus the Christ, the King, and that we would, in looking at him and in studying the scriptures, be transformed, be renewed, so that we might more faithfully follow and worship and enjoy all that you are and all that you have given. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, throughout all of human history, people have struggled with what we call natural disasters. Uh, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, especially people of faith have often struggled with these events. Um, it's a, a little bit easier, although it's still very tough to understand what we call moral evil, which would be a human being mean to another human, say, for instance, a terrorist attack. Right? We, we can kind of understand that a little more simply, right? Why did this happen? Well, because that person made a choice and they did this. There's still a lot of questions and, 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 and tension and some doubt that might come from that. But, but much harder to kind of grasp is God's role in our experience of natural disasters. In the modern world, a project was kicked off to try to understand the relationship between God and natural disasters. Uh, and it happened because of an event in Lisbon, Portugal. Um, so on a Sunday morning in 1755, there was an earthquake, a very big earthquake. At this time, there's no weather channel going 24-7. There is no uh, very well-coordinated system of communication for such events. And you have thousands of people inside of churches worshiping on 1970, 
1755 in the, the morning of the, the earthquake. After the earthquake came a tsunami. And the tsunami came and collapsed hundreds and thousands of churches. And well over 50,000 people, we estimate, died on that, that Sunday morning. And different philosophers and scholars started there to write critiques of the Christian faith or defenses of the Christian faith in light of what happened on that Sunday morning. It was a particularly moving example of the evil we might experience because of a natural disaster because you have people in church worshiping with no clue what's on the way. And the sea starts to turn and churn and a tsunami comes and crushes them. We have lots of recent examples of these natural disasters. You had the earthquake in Haiti not too long ago. The, the count was upwards of around 200,000 people lost their lives. The, the struggle with natural disasters actually goes all the way back to biblical time. So if you know about the book of Job, um, which is where we got the title for this sermon series, The Doors of the Sea, in our scripture reading today, um, God responding to Job says, Who are you? Were you the ones that made doors for the sea to try to keep them in and protect my creation? Job, um, if you think about it, actually most of the suffering that Job went through was because of natural disasters, what we would call natural disasters. Some um, foreign armies came in and killed some of his servants and, and children, but for the most part, what Job went through suffering was natural disasters. And as the book explores evil, and as we'll talk about the book throughout the series, we'll find that the book actually is really exploring the evil that results from sometimes natural disasters. And so this raises a lot of questions for people of faith when things like this happen. We have questions like, why would God allow this? Why wouldn't God prevent it? God knew it was coming and could do all things. Why wouldn't he just stop it? Why would God make a world like this? Why would God make a world and fill it with you and I, his people, when it can cause such destruction and suffering? What is God doing in response to these natural disasters? Is he content with them? Is he working towards something? Are these natural disasters, at least sometimes, judgments from God? for individual sin or a sin of the community. We might see that as frivolous, um, but I can tell you already there have been lots of people who have listed out the reasons why Houston was hit by Harvey as a judgment from God. And lest we, we mock it too quickly, we'll have to note and explore in the series that there's plenty of biblical texts where God seemingly uses a natural disaster to punish people to bring judgment on people because of their sins. We might wonder, how might our sin influence our experience of these natural disasters? Could we make them worse? I think of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and, and most people who analyze that situation and the aftermath um, think that the death toll and the suffering that, that was caused by Hurricane Katrina was exasperated um, by an ineffective response however you lay the blame there. Um, if you look, there's a large difference between socioeconomical classes and how they experience such natural disasters. I can tell you even today, actually, I know of a community in Houston um, that is a very poor community full of elderly people that has not been touched, has not been visited by people who are seeking to um, bring relief and aid 
because of the hurricane. I was told just yesterday that you have elderly people sitting in homes full of water still. Haven't been cleaned since the storm came. No sanitation. And I can guess that that probably wouldn't be the case if those people had more money. Those people were more connected. They might have already seen aid. All these questions kind of surround us when we experience these natural disasters. And so we're starting a new sermon series this morning called Doors of the Sea, A Faithful God and Natural Disasters to explore these questions and to look at some of these pertinent biblical passages. But this morning, I want to set us up for success in answering these questions and looking at these passages um, by looking at the larger story represented in Scripture. Um, And so we will, over the coming weeks, answer, try to answer at least some of these questions. And we will try to look at deeply some of these um, biblical passages. We will explore what's called providence, God's loving hand guiding creation to its intended goal. And some of what we might find might challenge things that that you had previously believed. We might look at passages and see them in a different light. We kind of like to do that here at Sweetwater Christian Church kind of dig deep into the scriptures and not just accept kind of Sunday school answers that we had been given. But this morning, what I want you to do is see that God and the sea have had a long and complex relationship. And you and I are blessed because the the scriptures that we've been given are actually one big story. It's it's a narrative, what we might call a meta-narrative. It's the story that makes sense of all other stories. And so before you can understand an individual story in the scriptures or in our life, it makes more sense to understand the entire story. And having that kind of larger perspective might give us a better way to experience and interpret and think about the smaller stories that we're afflicted with. So we're going to look at this morning three texts that deal with the sea that deal with God's relationship with the sea. And we start with the story of creation. If you have a Bible, please flip with me to Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have one, there's a black hardback underneath the seat around you. You are more than welcome to grab one of those and read along with us. The more I grow theologically, the more I I grow in my knowledge of the Scriptures, the more I mature in my faith, the more I'm convinced that creation— And the creation stories are vitally important for us to have a right understanding of God and of ourselves and of history. There's a lot of traps that people get caught up on in the creation story. And and I think sometimes um, what you have is people who take it too literally, but not too seriously. Or people who don't take it literally and don't take it seriously. But I think a serious engagement with the creation stories really paves the foundation for any correct thinking about God. And really exploring and looking in depth at the creation story reveals to us a lot of things that we might not have thought about before, a lot of things about the world God has created, why the world is the way it is, and what God's intention with the world is. So in Genesis 1, let's read together from verse 1, starting in verse 1. It reads like this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, or you could be translated sea. And God said that there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Tove is the Hebrew word here for, for good. Say tove with me, tove. You'll see this over and over and over again in the creation story. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light 
from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now this continues in a rhythmic pattern as God creates things. As he creates, he starts to give his creation creative ability. So he'll tell the earth to bring forth livestock. God, as the creator, still creates, but now starts to create through things that he's already created. And let's fast forward to when mankind was created in verse 26. We've had this rhythmic pattern. God said it was. He said, Tove, it was good. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, humanity in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, a command, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, if you read Genesis 1 um, properly, the, the main message you get out of it is this repetition of tov. Tov, 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 tov. After God creates humans, the tone changes a bit. We're told tov meod, which means very good. But the main picture we get is God creates a world. After he creates each individual thing on each individual day, he steps back and he self-evaluates. So this is God's judgment on the world. This is God's view of what he has done. It's good. It's very good. And this word tov can mean beautiful. In the context, it, it probably means something more particular to um, creation has been ordered in the perfect and right way so that it might one day meet God's intentions for it. The creation story is a story of ordering. It's a story from chaos to order. So God starts with the um, earth without form and void, darkness and, and this sprawling sea, and he starts to separate things, right? He says, you go here and you go here and you do this and you do this. It's like a, a, a business owner who buys a office space and he starts setting up cubicles and putting in computers and TVs. Maybe not TVs unless it's a really cool office place. Phones, though. He starts ordering his, his domain here so that it might be able to function as the business that he wants it to function as. It's good. It's ready to be what God intends it to be. But here's an important point. While creation is created good, it never loses that status, even after the fall. Creation was not created perfect. I encounter this all the time, particularly in the classroom. Um, I'll have students say creation was perfect at the beginning. And I'll say, well, was it? Can you show me that? They'll say, well, yes, it was good. And I'll say, well, there's a difference, right, between good and, and perfect, there's a difference between good and perfect. I would contend that creation was created very good, but defiantly not perfect. I think it's a point of the story. I think it's a part of the narrative of scriptures. Anyone who creates, in a sense we're all creators, but a, a creative person knows often that the first draft is not the, the last draft. Um, if you're writing, as I've written, one of my, my mottos when I'm writing, whether it's a sermon or an article or a book, is, is I, I always have this phrase in the front of my mind or, or, or pasted somewhere where I can see it, which is, there's no such thing as writing, there's only rewriting. I was taught this by a wise teacher once. 
There's no such thing as writing. It's only rewriting. Your second draft will always be better than your first draft. Your 30th draft will always be better than your 29th draft. If, if you perform, or in my case, you preach, you, you feel this and experience this. So I've got a couple sermons that I take on the road with me when I'm invited to go speak at conferences and, and camps and retreats and things like that. And so one or two sermons, I've preached dozens and dozens and dozens of times, if not hundreds of times. And it's an interesting experience because I get to see it tweak over time. Lindsay, my wife, as she's able to come with me on some of these trips, gets to see this sermon she's heard three or four times improve just a little bit in this one context. I, I, I carefully figure out what would make that story funnier. How could I embarrass myself a little bit more? What kind of timing or body language could I use to drive home that point better? What language would connect better in terms of, of the scripture? Or if, if you think of a comedian, right? Someone who records a stand-up special. What you don't see in that stand-up special is the year of touring before it. Comedians start out on this tour, and they go from town to town, night after night, and they do what? They try things. They test material. They perfect jokes, which is why when they get recorded on Comedy Central and you watch the final product, every joke is funny. Every joke is good. Let me tell you, if you were at one of those first concerts, there might have been a couple that weren't that great. And you might have heard a joke that was okay, but now that you hear it in the special, you're like, that's 10 times better. That's part of the creative process. Our, our musicians here, when you write a song, the first idea that comes into your mind for that song is not going to be the best version of that song. Over time, you add. Over time, you bring it to its um, full potential. There's a, a mistake, I think, in Christian theology where sometimes we think the story of creation and fall and salvation is a story of paradise lost and paradise regained. That we started off in a perfect world, it was screwed up, and now God is working to bring it back to where it was. There's a lot of problems with this idea, both biblically, theologically, logically, philosophically. One of the, the main problems, I think that's easy for all of us to understand, is this makes God out to look like just a really bad conductor in the world. So God creates a perfect creation, doesn't take quite good care of it, and all of a sudden he's now spent thousands of years, if not hundreds or millions, depending on, on what you believe about the, the earth's history and existence, all to do what? Just to get it back to where it was. But from the very beginning, the earliest Christian theologians never thought that was the case. They thought what God created was good, but not perfect, that what we would have in our new world and eternal life was so much better than what was originally created. Often they would imagine Adam and Eve or creation itself as an infant or a toddler, always meant to grow up, to develop, to become closer to God, for humans to be, become closer to the image of, of Christ. It's good, but it's not perfect. If it was perfect, we might ask some questions like this. How could anything go wrong? In a perfect world, I don't think mistakes get made. Why is there a serpent in a perfect world? However you interpret the serpent, right? I can't imagine its presence being there in a, in a perfect world. We're, we're told that in Genesis 2, verse 18, when Adam's created and looking for companionship, God himself says it's not good for Adam to be alone. 
So after God declares creation good and very good over and over and over again, he looks and he finds a spot where he says, that's not good. And he fixes it. He pushes it more towards the right trajectory, towards his intention for creation. Perhaps the best evidence we have that creation is good but not perfect is the command that we read in verse um, one, chapter 1, verse 28, that humans are commanded to subdue the earth have dominion over the earth. The idea here in the creation story is that um, we have been placed in a garden, but the rest of the world still needs to be cultivated. And so we have work to do. Creation has a future. The analogy for this, we might say, is creation's not a statue. It's not a one-and-done project where God creates, and it's done, and he looks back and goes, this is great, and he kind of walks away from it. We might say instead creation's a project. It has a future. It has an intended destiny. We might say creation is more like a kingdom than a statue. God sets the world up so that he can populate it with the agents he wants in it and then guide them toward the intended purpose that he has. And if it's not perfect, what does that mean? That means that there's change coming. That means there's a future where potential is met. That means there's potential for people to resist God's good desires for creation. That means there's no risk-free zone in creation. We can give you examples of this. A good creation, a well-ordered creation, still entails risk. Um, So you have water, and water is life-giving. It's necessary for our life. This is before the fall, right? Water is necessary. But water can also be dangerous. You can fall into a pond of water and drown. You can slip on water and hurt yourself. The potential for suffering and harm is there from the beginning as part of God's good creation. Or we might think of gravity, our old friend. Gravity is necessary for life. At the same time, gravity can be catastrophic. Gravity can lead to to pain and suffering. Even in a good world, even without moral evil, without human beings sinning. Now, you might have someone push someone, and then gravity brings them to the fall. Evil can multiply the suffering that's already there as a risk in creation, but it's there. In effect, we might say the suffering like Job experiences, it can actually occur in a good, well-ordered, and reliable creation. We don't have to doubt that creation is good and well-ordered just because suffering happens. Because we know it's not perfect, it's inherently has some risk to it. There's not a risk-free zone in the world, even for righteous people, which is Job's problem, right? He's like, look, I'm perfect. I haven't haven't done anything wrong. Why am I suffering? Why did these plagues come on me? Why did I get this disease? And the answer is because God didn't create two zones of creation, one risk-free, where the righteous people never have to experience the randomness and risk inherent in our created world, and then one where all the sinners can go and get hurt. We all, the just and the unjust, live in this world. The rain falls on all of us, the just and the unjust. And sometimes we're kind of arrogant when we think about creation. So I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes we tend to believe if we were in charge of creation, we would have done it better. We would have taken a little bit more care with the details. We would have actually kept the beauty of the sunsets, but eliminated germs like staff. 
gotten rid of mosquitoes. They have no point. But the more we understand the processes of the world, however, the less likely it seems that this is even possible. The created order looks like a package deal to people who study it closely. Exactly the same biochemical processes that are in God's good world, like cell mutation, which are a necessary dimension of creaturely development, can also lead to suffering and disease. You can't have one without the other. In other words, the possibility of disease is not gratuitous. It's not extra, but it's, we might say, a necessary cost of life in the good world that God has created. And give you another example, the sea. If, if you know me well, you'll know that I love orca whales. I have since I was a little child. They just excite me. I'll put a video up on social media of an orca whale coming and like swimming alongside someone on a jet ski. And I'm putting it up as like, this would be the best day of my life. And people comment like, yeah, this is horrific. And I'm like, no, what are you, you're missing out here. I've got orca whale socks. Sometimes I'll wear them on Sunday. I didn't wear them today. I didn't plan ahead. My wife, for a present once, I forget what the occasion was, got me an orca whale shower curtain, which I'll admit, in front of family and friends, I'm a little embarrassingly happy about. It brings me a lot of joy. I think most of us probably have enjoyed the feeling of walking on the beach at the start of sunset, feeling the sand under our feet, watching the waves, looking at the expanse of the ocean, realizing how little we are, and somehow that gives us joy. Somehow that brings us closer to God. And at the same time, we all understand that the sea can be a dangerous place. There are currents in the sea. There are animals in the sea. There are weather patterns that emerge out of the sea. And it's the potential for this kind of chaos out of the sea that leads it to be a very potent ancient metaphor for chaos and destruction. The whole ancient Near Eastern world, the same world that the the people writing the Old Testament lived in, they saw the sea as a symbol for chaos, as a symbol for destruction. And from Genesis 1 onward, as God puts doors on the sea, starts to order the sea, He is at work redeeming and perfecting his creation, his sea, the chaos and destruction inherent in creation. And we can see this throughout the scriptures. Let me take you to another place in the Bible, Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, we get a story where Jesus interacts with the sea and some of the chaos and destruction that comes from the sea at times. Now, it's more apparent in the New Testament what God is doing with the sea, symbolically as chaos and destruction, and sometimes literally as, as the water and, and weather patterns. But it's actually there in the Old Testament as well. There's this theme of, of kind of warfare throughout the scriptures, that God is, is fighting for his new world. He's fighting to bring creation to its maturity, to its potential, to its intended end. When Jesus comes in, he comes to inaugurate God's kingdom. He comes to start the process of God's new world being made real. And as he does that, he comes in fighting. Not physically, but when he sees demons, he exercises them. When he sees sicknesses, he heals them. When he sees sins, he forgives them. When he sees death, he resurrects. He takes what doesn't belong in God's intended 
mature creation and as a sign gets rid of it to point us toward what God's world is supposed to be in the end. So in Matthew chapter 8, we get a very interesting story. We'll pick it up in verse 23. And when he, he being Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. Jesus was a good sleeper. That's a good lesson for all of us. Sleep is important. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And this is so interesting. Then he rose and rebuked. Remember that word. He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? And the setting here is so important. You have Jesus out on the sea. And this story rings true both literally. He he does calm the storm and much more deeply in the context of the sea being a metaphor for chaos and destruction in the world. To both of these, Jesus rebukes. He commands the sea to calm. And the sea obeys. It's interesting that word obeyed as if there was a free agent there. It's interesting that word rebuke. So the word rebuke, Jesus rebukes the storm, is actually the same word that's used throughout the Gospels when Jesus addresses demons, when he performs an exorcism and casts out demons and evil from people's lives. He rebukes the spirits. Jesus here rebukes the sea. Now, ancient um, people in the first century around Jesus actually thought most of the water were controlled by a god or by a demon. And, and so perhaps this is meant to be read kind of literally like that. Jesus rebukes whatever evil spirit is stirring up this storm here. We know that the, the Sea of Galilee, which Jesus is on here, is known for having storms that come fast and furious out of nowhere. And they're very big and, and mighty and, and scary. And Jesus here sleeps through the storm, wakes up, rebukes it, and the wind is calm. Now, I used to have to use examples farther back to illustrate the um, chaotic nature of the sea, how it can be used as a metaphor for that. Now, with Hurricane Harvey, though, perhaps unfortunately, we have a better frame of mind to understand why the sea might seem so chaotic and destructive. I don't know if you are like me, but at, at one point during Harvey, it evacuated, it was in a safe place. I wondered, when is it going to stop raining? I mean, you've got this, this huge weather pattern that emerges out of the sea, kind of like a monster or a beast, and it comes and it just sits on top of our city. And I have to imagine, perhaps people in the, the flood from Genesis 6 who were not on the ark had those same thoughts at one point. It starts to rain, and it starts to rain, and they just keep thinking, I mean, it can't keep raining, can it? Just every day, all the time. And it starts to flood and to flood. And they start to, to be a little less skeptical of Noah as the ark starts to float. We understand, I think, now how scary the sea can be. We control a lot of things as humans, but there's no button to get rid of a, a, a tsunami. When a hurricane comes, when the sea comes for humanity, the best we can do is run. So it wants you, it gets you. Now imagine that 
But before meteorologists, before weather people, before the weather channel, imagine how scary the sea might be to you. Imagine the stories you might hear growing up about entire cities and villages just wiped out, families and communities destroyed without any warning. And you can see, I think, quite easily why the sea is that potent of a metaphor for the chaos and destruction that is in God's world. I don't know if you've been on a a boat that got caught in a storm, um, but it is indeed a frightening experience. What's interesting here is that Jesus, his disciples are, are largely fishermen, and so they would have had a strong stomach for the waves and the storms of the Sea of Galilee. But this apparently was such a bad one that they feared for their lives. They said, we are, we're perishing, we're dying, and you're sleeping. Can you help us out? They were, they were looking at the death of themselves in, in front of them. I, a few years ago, had an experience kind of like this. There was no rebuking of the sea, um, but I was caught in the middle of a storm. Luckily, it was in a 21st century boat um, with GPS and, and all those good things. We, my family had gone down to um, Florida for a little vacation, and my dad at the time, this is important at the time, he was part of a boat uh, kind of club membership. And so you kind of go to a marina at different places in uh, the nation and take out a boat for the day. You know, you kind of like paid your dues and then got to pick your boat. So at the resort we were staying in Florida, it was about three hours away from the marina, which had this boat that my dad had his eyes on. He had wanted to, to take this boat out into the ocean for so long. And so we drove three hours and we got to the place and I went to go get the boat. It's this big warehouse, the boat stacked 12, 20 high, and the boat was not there. And my dad starts getting red. He's been promised this boat. He's reserved this boat. And he's like, how is this boat not here? Where is it? And like, well, like, we don't know, but I guess it's out in the water. I guess someone gave the boat out to somebody else. And so as my dad is getting more and more flustered, we are like, let's just take another boat out. <laughs> There's hundreds here. They'll, give us, they'll even give us an upgrade to the one you RSVP'd for because it's not there. But out of a matter of principle, my dad said, No. And so we drove three hours back to the resort. And the next day, we drove three hours back to the marina. The boat was there. Now, there was a forecast for potential poor weather. And my mom does not like boats. And she particularly did not like the idea of going out on a boat, no matter how cool it was in my dad's eyes, if there was a chance of poor weather. But we thought, you know, let's go, let's go try. And so we're out on the water, and we're having a great time, and everything's fun and good and dandy. And then all of a sudden, the lights turn off. And it's just like pitch black everywhere you look. And all of a sudden, I mean, we could have sworn there were people all around us, but all of a sudden there's no one around anymore. <laughs> we were completely by ourselves in this little part of the ocean, which is not really a good sign, I don't think. Immediately, my mom starts to cry and break down. My little brother, who's four or five at the time, starts to cry. My sister starts to cry. I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie, and I have lots more faith than they do. So I was, you know, a little bit more composed. My dad is doing his best just to pretend like he knows what he's doing. And out of nowhere, the sky breaks apart. And furious rain comes down. It's hailing. It hurts. We have marks on our skin afterwards from this rain. We're all life jacketed up. I have my brother, 
roped around onto my life jacket because we're being tossed around by the wind and the waves like a, a ragdoll. I mean, it was, it was scary. The assumption was, right, any, at any moment now, we're going to be thrown out of this boat or the bo- boat's going to be capsized. We need to prepare for swimming until the Coast Guard can find us or something like that. And as the fog and the darkness got worse and worse, you couldn't see anything. The GPS was gone. Um, again, my, my dad can barely keep his head up. The rain hurts so bad, but he's like trying to like drive somewhere. At any moment though, right, we could have been topped over. We could have run into something. You couldn't see 10 feet in front of you. Now, eventually, we uh, just keep kind of idling there and eventually see some light over in, in one direction and just book it over there and we get out and we're safe. The moral of the story is my dad no longer has a boat membership. <laughs> That's his last adventure. But Jesus rebukes this storm. He calms it. And this, I think, is a sign of God's intention for the world, of the destiny God is pushing creation towards, to get rid of the chaos and destruction inherent in creation, particularly when it comes to literally the sea. This is something you see in the Old Testament. It's something you see in the Gospels. This is something that goes throughout the entire Scriptures. And so I take us to our last journey spot this morning, which is the very end of the scriptures in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter of the Bible. Knowing the beginning of a story, the middle of a story, the trajectory, and then knowing where it ends up, I think gives us lots of perspective. And here's how Revelation 21 reads, picking up in verse 1. We've I think seen in Jesus a sign of God's intention, a trajectory of history for creation, the destiny of God's good creation. Revelation 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. This is God's new world that he's come. This is creation matured and meeting its destiny. And what does John say here? They had passed away and the sea was no more. Now this is actually a super interesting phrase. I mean, for someone who's just reading the Bible for the first time, you get to this and you go, that's what's important about this? The first heaven and earth have passed away. The new one that God had promised, God's new world is here and there's no sea. And I've, I've never really looked it up because, you know, just from my education and, and from memory, I know that the sea is a powerful metaphor in John's book, the Revelation, is full of metaphorical language. And so most scholars unanimously conclude this is not really talking about water itself or bodies of water. This is talking about chaos and destruction. The new world has no chaos and destruction. There won't be a Harvey that gets in the way of humans living. There won't be a tsunami that comes and surprises churches on a Sunday morning. But I did look around just this week, just for kicks, And there are people who interpret this pretty literally. There's no sea in the new creation. Um, Some say there's just no salt water in the new creation. You just got fresh water. Um, So you just got lakes to enjoy and rivers. Um, But again, it it seems pretty clear to most scholars and, and serious interpreters of the Bible that sea here does not refer to the fact that there won't be orca whales in the new creation. Please... He's God. That's my one chance to swim with them. I don't have the money during this life. But in the new world, that's where you can find me. 
The promise is that there's no chaos and destruction. We keep reading, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You might think that list, which is a little bit more impressive rhetorically than just no more see, would be fronted when we're talking about the new creation and what's not in the new creation as good news. But instead, it seems like there being no sea here, representing metaphorically chaos and destruction, guarantees all of these negative features. No tears, God wipes them from the eyes. No death, no crying, no mourning, no pain. All those things are of the old world and they have passed away. Creation has reached its intended destiny. Now, having this perspective, knowing that we have a faithful God who's committed to getting creation to this point, where one day God's new world is here. The old former things have passed away. There's no death and there's no mourning. There's no suffering. There's no crying. Having that perspective should, I think, give us a lot of interesting and important perspectives in how we experience things right now and how we answer questions right now and how we look at biblical stories and passages right now. You know, if I were to create, let's say, a robot uh, whose job was to hammer nails uh, automatically, sold it on a little hammer on the end of the robot arm and it just was hitting nails, okay? I might say to you from the beginning, look, the robot's not finished. It can always be improved, but for right now, I've kind of got it together and we'll put a nail into some wood for you. And then you might go about using it or being a part of a community with it and you might be holding a nail and it might hit your thumb. And you might go, ow, I don't like this robot. I don't like this hammer. But if you knew and trusted me, if you trusted me and knew that the intention was for one day this, this robot to be perfected, for it not to, to hit your fingers, or hand anymore. I think that would change how you experienced when it did hit your thumb, when it did hit your hand. I think that would change how you experience what you think about me when it happened, my intentions. You might be more inclined to say, well, his intention wasn't to hurt you. It's just in progress. And perhaps that's how, our, how we should um, foundationally, at the start, look at things like natural disasters part of God's good creation on its way to a perfect destiny. And every now and then, human beings happen to get mixed up with the hammer coming down, with the sea pushing through the doors. And it causes us suffering and pain. But because we know who created it, because we know what the intention is, because we know we've seen already God's working in one direction, and because we know the end of the story. You and I can be people who have faith. God's created this world. It's in process. He's committed to seeing it through to its beautiful and perfect completion. And so you and I this morning are called to have faith. We're called to hold on tightly to that promise. And even more than that, we're, we're given hope with this trajectory, with this destiny. We're given hope that no matter what might happen to us right now, 
We're given hope that no matter what might happen to the world, what might happen to people that we love or know that are around us, that this is the world that's coming one day. That we don't even have to doubt God's intentions. We don't have to doubt the good goodness of, of creation, the world that God has created. That we can hope that better days are coming. That better days have been guaranteed through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection and ascension. That the crucified one who now reigns over creation will indeed be faithful to see it through to its end. That one day you and I will enjoy this new world with no chaos, with no hurricanes that destroy, with no tsunamis that collapse churches, with no earthquakes that topple people over. As we come to the table this morning, we, we celebrate communion every week. It's a great opportunity for us to reaffirm our faith in this God, to reaffirm our faith in creation and in its destiny. It's a great time to reaffirm our hope. We know that hope is one of the most powerful things humans have. Civilization might have already collapsed if we did not have hope, if we did not hold out hope that no matter how bad things might be right now, something better is coming. And sometimes hope is groundless. People just hope against all hope. But for Christians, our hope is grounded. It's grounded in the work and person of Jesus. It's grounded in the reality and love and faithfulness of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that's a hope that will see us through. It's a hope that will see us through destruction. That's a hope that will see us through suffering and pain. That's a hope that will see us through our own deaths. It's a hope that will resurrect. It's a hope that will make a new world. It's a hope that all things one day will be made new. Will you pray with me?